0: This podcast series has been made possible through an exclusive sponsorship from SA's number one nano-influencer platform, The Salt. Most brands have a communication line to their existing customers, but not a way to get them to have additional positive brand conversations. The Salt solves the problem by identifying brand fans and getting them to talk more about their positive brand experiences. The Salts have a database of over 140,000 registered brand fans and in-depth information on each to perfectly match your brand to the right influencers. Reach out to them now and see what they can do for you.
1: Hi, I'm Gordon Muller. I'm the guru in the Doc and Guru podcast. Thanks for being with us. For those of you who don't know me, I've spent over 40 years in the media industry in South Africa and uh, pretty much made it my home, my life, my passion. I have other passions, unfortunately, for my sins. I'm an Arsenal supporter and a Sharks supporter, so we're going to do pretty much everything on the show as it pertains to media, marketing and money, but we don't take jokes about Arsenal or the Sharks.
2: I'm Doug Mateus, uh the doc on the show. Uh, and again, for those of you who don't know me, I've spent 30 years in, in uh, various companies in South Africa. Uh, running uh, different marketing functions. And the last job I had, I was privileged and, uh, enough to work with a team that took uh, the brand to the fastest growing brand in South Africa in 2018 with a 47% year on year growth. So that was a, a great achievement uh, for the team, and, and, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, from a personal point of view, I do a little bit of cycling uh, and also snow skiing. So we quite enjoy that. But again, uh, today's discussion is around all things marketing and media.
1: Yep, that's right, Doc. All- Morning, Doc. Good to uh, be in touch with you again. We've had a, a little spell with me being away in the in game reserve, and I think you've been off surfing, whatever it is you Eastern Cape boys do in your spare time.
3: <laughs> uh, Gordon, actually, I was, uh, I was in the bush as well, so it was quite nice to just get away. It's always nice to reflect. And, yeah, you know, given where we are as a country, uh, we've obviously now opted for the Zoom route again, much like a throwback to last year. You know, we got quite used to getting back in the studio. But uh, I guess, you know, being sensible, uh, we we will uh, remote today. So, yeah, nice to you. Nice, and, yeah, nice to hear, chat.
1: you're right. I mean, here we, we're going all the way back to last year. And it's uh, it seems really quite surreal that we're going through all of this again. Um, and speaking of last year, it's 12 months up. And we've got with us again today Jeremy Sampson, who is CEO of Brand Finance Africa, to talk about an incredible piece of uh, of insight into the marketing world which is the brand finance uh, top 50 brands in, in in south africa again so jeremy thank you once again for the time appreciate you being with us and uh hope you're keeping well in these crazy covid times well thank you both it's uh, it's always a pleasure to be with
4: you and i enjoy the banter as well um, yes what strange times we're living in you know this time a year ago, we were only six months into it, and now here we are 18 months into it. And uh, I'm afraid there are still surprises around the corner. Uh, I know that there was a, a legal practice that used to claim on the website that there were lawyers who could see around the corner, uh, which immediately meant to me that they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, but I think people talking about COVID seem to predict what they see coming down the line, but it continues to surprise us. So. Uh, I think all of us are hunkering down and realising that uh, the big thing now
1: is to stay safe. Yeah, and just uh, to, our, to our listeners out there, uh, patience with us. You've got the Lulats in charge of this, the sound, uh, soundboard today. So uh, I'm afraid this is like a smorgasbord of, of opportunity for Doug. I mean, Doug, you're a deep-seated uh, sort of <laughs> desire to be a sound engineer. I can tell by the way that you're gazing fervently at that keyboard <laughs> of yours.
3: Uh, Gordon, I'm just making sure that I don't uh, touch my keyboard during the session so that we don't switch off the Zoom. So we far prefer the high-tech studio we used to, but, you know, uh, Jeremy, you made the point off-air, and I think we've all made the point um, that this is sort of where we're going these days. So, you know, we've got to live with it. Uh, And and certainly Zoom, which we're using today, is a fantastic fantastic tool. Jeremy, from my side, thanks very much. It is a year on. And uh, as Gordon said, you know, what a, I mean, a fantastic report. I always like reading it. Uh, and, and some things were a little bit the same. And we'll chat about that, that being MTN and, and its 10th year that it's the top brand. But some things very different uh, and big winners and losers. So I don't know if you want to maybe just start off by taking us through just some of the headlines uh, of, of what came out as salient points. And then, you know, Gordon and I will delve into one or two things that are of interest to us.
4: Okay, great. Um, If I can even take a a step back from that, first of all, because people say, oh, do you do this anywhere else in the world? And the answer is, well, brand finance is around 25 years, as of the 1st of April this year, breakaway from interbrand. And uh, brand finance now values probably about 5,000 brands um, around the year. We produce about 80 or 90 rankings a year. And um, it's all based on international standards. So I must get this right. There's the international standard 10668, which is brand valuation. And then uh, another ISO came out on brand evaluation, which is 20671. So everything we do is based on those two ISOs. And in South Africa, we look at probably the top 100, 150, but then we only publish what we see as the top 50, top 50. We've been doing this in South Africa now probably, I wasn't involved in the beginning, but probably about eight, nine, ten years. Um, and certainly the last five years since I've been involved, um, the winner every year. And as you say, it's almost a bit boring perhaps to some people, um, but the fact of the matter is that the telcos of MTN and Vodacom are dominant and then very much the banks. And uh, that's of course, the same sort of thing as you'd have in emerging countries. Often it's the banks and the telcos are the dominant brands. There has been one surprise this year and that number three when it comes to a sector has invariably been insurance. And we only have to just stop and think in South Africa how many top insurers there are. But this year for the first time, retail overtook them as a sector by value. So those are the big four sectors, uh, telco, and obviously, telcos are in a very good position going forward because of the imminent introduction of 5G and uh, what people are doing with their data, etc. Banking, which will always be very, very strong indeed, and then uh, the retail side, and that perhaps is one of the spin-offs of COVID, is that some of the retailers have got stronger, and the co- competition out there is perhaps quite good for us all, and of the retailers, the one that's really doing perhaps particularly well, are people like Spa, people like Checkers that are doing home deliveries. I don't know about you, but in the area I live, North Johannesburg, um, the numbers of uh, Checkers scooters buzzing around the area um, is quite a shock to the system. And uh, if you actually go to any of those uh, Checkers stores where they do this from, there's a whole fleet of guys on their scooters lined up, running around the place and giving fast delivery. So I'm I'm jumping around a bit, but that perhaps illustrates how COVID has provided opportunities as well for people to change and to adjust and perhaps to get
1: an edge on their competition. Yeah, and I think, I I mean, the retail thing for me is fascinating because my intuition would have almost been the inverse of that, that during COVID, some of the crises and the lockdowns um, would have had a dramatic impact there. You know, perhaps is it... You know, I always remember going back to Larry Light. Larry Light was talking in the 80s and 90s even about the top three brands. Um, I'm sort of diversifying a little bit or diverging a little bit before we get back to on track of it. Does it imply, or do, does it, you know, or I can imagine that there must be brands that have just crashed out the bottom. Is there a consolidation in the top retailers uh, at the price of some of the small mom and pop shops? I think that you raise a very good point
4: because at the top end, if I can call it that, the checkers, the spa, the pick and payers, the woolies, basically they're doing very well. But when you mention mums and pups, I think that's precisely the area right across the board that is suffering the most. Um, Even going further down the pyramid, as it were, to sparsers, I'm sure they're all having a very, very tough time. And this is where the the bigger brands, the bigger companies have deeper pockets. uh, They have more muscle. They can see out a situation like this. Whereas mums and pops, whether it's the, the store on the corner, whether it's little restaurants and coffee shops, they're the ones who are suffering perhaps the most at the moment. And whilst the big boys look good going down the line, I'm afraid there's blood all over the streets because people are closing down. I'm sure you know that you only have to walk around some of the high streets. Um, I know, um, Doug, you're in the Kensington area, but I'm sure you're finding more and more shops are closed, um, and that was before the lockdown on Monday this week, um, where you can't even get a, well it's difficult to get a cup of coffee outside if you want to, but more and more you go around the shopping malls as well, and and certain sectors are all boarded up where shops have closed down. and. The shops that are standing, uh, and I have a daughter who has a small shop in Hyde Park, she said the shops on both sides of me have closed down. So she said the footfall I'm getting in my part of the shopping centre is actually diminishing all the time. So there really are bad, bad situations and great concerns out there, especially the mums and pups where this is their form of livelihood, where they put their savings into keeping the business going. And now again, with another lockdown, they're really struggling to hang in there, and sadly, a lot of them are not able to.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Jimmy. I think we've all seen this. You know, it is a sad state, and I, I guess, you know, you look at the whole livelihoods and lives and, and uh, debate, again, now, you know, the restaurant industry is down. We can, we can talk a little bit about later, about alcohol brands. So Some of the big guys are still there, but, I mean, the wine production of last year has been hoarded, so, so those cases are well made, but... Just interestingly, uh, Gordon, I want to just touch on a point, and when it says, you know, ShopRite, uh, uh, Jeremy, you made the point, Checkers, in particular, as part of the ShopRite group, has done exceptionally well for 6060 and their extra savings card. Um, I haven't looked at the figures of late. They're about a month outdated. I think they had 17 million uh, people using that card. So that's a fantastic savings initiative. Um, The point I want to make, though, is that when it says ShopRite uh, as the 12th most valuable brand, I'm not sure whether that's... Just ShopRite itself for the holdings, because they've also got other brands like you Save. in other words, right into informal sectors and townships, so that, that brand, the ShopRite footprint and its ethos and its science and its goodness of value to the consumer perhaps permeates a wider part of society and not just the brand that we would see as ShopRite that appears in certain malls. So, you know, I don't know the answer, but if it is, then it's, you know, it's certainly the ripple is going to cross the pond. And, and I mean, ShopRite is a group. Have done exceptionally well, and, and they really are the darling at the moment of the retail sector. Just you
4: make a very good point there, but um, you're absolutely right. But you missed one point. I want to make is that these rankings are done without the cooperation of the uh, individual companies, um, and that can sometimes create problems and challenges and issues because um, you know that. The main source of financial data is probably the annual report if a company's listed and a lot of companies don't go into fine segmental detail of their different brands so this is where i think my understanding is we sometimes lump things together because we can't break them out Um, and i'm sure you will understand that once we bring out results like this we get people calling saying How did you arrive at that figure or why are we up or why are we down or what's going on? Um, And this is where uh, we can engage with clients and sometimes they'll say, well, look, we can share with you our data because our data is telling us that actually we're doing better than you're saying or whatever. Um, And by data, I'm referring, of course, to both the financial and research. Um, And through their research, they've got lots of data, whether it's tracking or whatever, to show how they're going. This is where it would be great, in fact, to be talking, as you say, to ShopRite or people like that, to find out how the individual brands are doing and perhaps by geography and by sector. That's perhaps another aspect that we're finding more and more that when we do engage with uh, clients and look at their brands, more and more people want very, very granular research and granular detail. They're going into much more depth than they did even two or three years ago. And perhaps this is one of the impacts of COVID.
1: Uh, Barry, uh, sorry, I'm calling him Barry. Forgive me. There, uh, um, you're beginning. You know, now we're on Zoom. I can actually see, you're actually beginning to look like Barry, your brother. So apologies for that, Jeremy. The uh, world I'll an apology please. <laughs> the grandfather as opposed to your brother who's the brand grandfather. But uh, just coming back to the model itself, because that for me is one of the most interesting components of this, is take us through the process. Uh, you know, I mean, now there's brand impact, there's brand strength, and it's a ratio between brand impact and brand strength. Just talk about that a little, if you could, to explain the model. And then what intrigues me is embedded in this is – elements of sustainability and projection, which I think is particularly interesting. And obviously, if you're buying a stake in something, you want to know how it's going to play out, not just where it is right now. So the model for me seems robust um, and agile at the same time.
4: Basically, I would refer people to um, the brand finance website, where um, everything is transparent. We don't have black box uh, aspects. So you see that we work on um, basically as you've highlighted the financial data uh, where we'll go back three or four years, um, but also we'll look at the projected um, results of the brand and the company going forward three or four years as well. That's very important because sometimes when you look, especially at global brands, perhaps their future prospects aren't as good or as secure as their current results. I know a couple of years ago, Apple was removed from being number one brand in the world because a lot of people argued its future wasn't so bright. I think that's changed in the last couple of years. And also a brand like Tesla, people say, you know it's almost been going through rarefied air the last five years or 10 years or however long it's been going. But the fact of the matter is it still keeps on going and its future now looks more and more secure. So one's got to look at the financial data Um, And then one looks, um, and this is where we have um, teams of accountants. Um, My main colleague in London, Declan Ahern, um, in fact, is a South African. He qualified at UCT, um, and uh, he's been living in London with Brand Finance the last four years. He's just qualified as a chartered accountant of England and Wales. Um, And so he looks through that financial data. And then you have people like myself who come, From the other side, if I can put it that way, of branding and marketing, Um, and you then have also insights and research people as well, so that one trawls through all that data and pulls it together. But you look at the discounted cash flow aspects, you look at the cost of capital, you look at all these financial metrics, and this is where, as I say, we're totally ISA compliant, to the point that we do work with the big four auditors as well, and they're totally happy with the way that we work also one must remember that um, sometimes when you value a brand what's it being valued for um, you now some people say most people say well aren't you going to put it on the balance sheet Well, do you know according to the accountants you can't put the value of a brand on the balance sheet if it's homegrown and uh, I think Gordon you'll like this one when I turn around and say well what's the difference between S- Smirnoff vodka and Johnny Walker most people say, are you mad? And I say, well, I'm talking from a brand perspective because Johnny Walker is a homegrown brand of Diageo. So you can't put the value on the balance sheet. Whereas they acquired Smirnoff Vodka, well, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so they can put a value there and they can assess that value. Likewise with uh, Perno Ricard, who's the second biggest drinks company in the world. They bought Absolute Vodka um, out of, um, was it the Finnish Co-op at the time? Uh, And that has a value that you can adjust and move around. So this is where you can put it all together, you bring it together, and you assess the value. Sometimes, of course, the value of a brand is going to be more if someone really wants to buy it and acquire it, whereas other brands don't fit into portfolios, and therefore brands are being bought and sold. We're seeing at the moment that um, with COVID, um, with the low cost of capital, low interest rates, there are more m as taking place around the world, mergers and acquisitions. And often the reason to actually merge with a company or acquire it is because of the brand. And sometimes it's because of the expertise within that company that runs the brand. People, I think, today everywhere are realizing that you've got to have a brand and you've got to have people at the top table who understand brands and marketing. And again, as I think the three of us know, Sometimes that isn't always the case in South Africa. You don't always have marketers at the top table or people who understand brands or, dare I say it,
3: reputational matters. I think that's such an important point, Jeremy, and Gordon, you and I have spoken at length now uh, on various episodes about marketers continuously educating themselves and, and the fact that A lot of marketers perhaps are not financially savvy. It should come as no surprise. Now, that's a sad indictment of of where we are as an industry. Not every marketer, but a lot of marketers are. And the challenge there, and I guess for for our listeners, is to go onto the brand finance site, understand the methodology. And so if your brand is in the top 50 and you get asked by the CFO or the CEO to explain how that possibly happened and if it went up or down, at least know how it worked. You may agree or disagree with the methodology, but then phone Jim and his team. But, I mean, it's a, it's a methodology that you use the same methodology year in and year out. So, that it's a repeatable process. So, um, And I think, you know, just looking at those numbers, as we all have, there's some big winners and some big losers. Let's just talk a little bit about the biggest winner of, of this year is, is Markham, And the biggest loser of this year is Country Road. Uh, both interestingly in the apparel sector, but I mean, for different reasons, the ones turned out the back by 39% and the other one's gone up uh, uh, to 44%. Uh, Jimmy, I don't know if you want to just touch on, on those two particular cases.
4: It's interesting as well, as you say, Markham's is part of the Fashini group and the Fashini group generally as a group is doing extremely well. I think aren't they the group as well that's uh, bought JET out of the EDCON, EDGARS uh, group as well. And Markham's is doing particularly strongly. Um, Country Road is a bit of a strange one because it's actually you know very closely linked to Woolworths as well uh, and of course Australia and they're the exact opposite. And to be honest, this is where sometimes I mentioned earlier, we're engaging with various companies to dig into the reasons why there's been this swing around and why you have these contrasts between these two groups. As you say, if you look at the main rising brands there, after Markham's, you get the Checkers and people like that. And Sanlam are doing very well, of course, and that's through acquisition throughout Africa. And the big losers, um, sadly, sell C there. And, um, and then you go down the line to Life, uh, which one would have thought at the moment would be doing very well. And then you get to some of the beer brands. So there's quite a lot of movement. Um, And as we said at the beginning of this chat, sometimes people say it's boring. I know there's one top financial journalist in this town who doesn't like to look at the rankings. He said, oh, they won't change. Well, he's wrong. Uh, And this is where we can see movement. And we can see that the brands that are staying up strong and standing proud are the ones where they have good professional teams and they're investing still in their brands. I think that's another aspect that people argue at the moment that because of COVID, where do we cut the budget? Oh, we'll, we'll cut the marketing budget. Um, and that's usually the, the default position. Whereas we all know that, especially during these difficult times, you've got to maintain share of voice, share of market, the sort of share of market that you have fought so hard for over the years to build up. You don't want to just give it away. Whereas some people at the moment, we're finding it going very, very quiet. Um, And that I think is going to be their detriment going forward compared with others in their sector who are being very aggressive. We've coming back to retail at the moment, retail and people like Checkers and ShopRite Group are being very aggressive out there, very strong, advertising a lot as well. And I think as a result, they're doing incredibly well, but they're in an incredibly competitive sector as well. And it's fascinating how I think they're feeding off each other and the competition between each other is improving the strength of the sector.
0: Hashtag no filter. That's how this podcast is delivering real down-to-earth stories told by real people. For an influencer campaign that takes brand conversation to everyday real-life situations, go check out thesalt.co.za. They are the undisputed experts in real influencer marketing.
2: Yeah, I
1: think for me it, it's it's fascinating, you know, and, and I'm trying still to get myself to differentiate in my own mind between the brand value and the strongest brand, you yeah. know, as a kind of dodgy wool ad man. My intuition is to play in the strongest brand space because I can I understand the the lexicon a bit better there. But I mean, kudos to MTN once again. I think for ten years on the trot, the number one uh, brand in terms of brand value. But the interesting one for me in the movers and shakers space, once again, is Capitec, uh, which uh, is the strongest brand. And there's a strong emphasis there on uh, reputation. Um, you've got three sort of key components of that reputational uh, perspective, which is um, ability to, to meet customer needs, um, practice ethical and sustainable uh, business, and and then just innovation. So those three elements congregate around um, making Capitec the strongest brand. So, you know, what what are they doing, you know, in that area? My eye then falls to the next level, down, which is the segments themselves. So interestingly enough, in the sector reputation and trust area, the number one sector is shared between cosmetics and food, Number three, appliances. Number four, retailer. But some of the big, most valuable sectors like banking and telecoms, which make up the number one, number two sectors in terms of value, are number 19 and number 20 in the trust and reputation space. What are banks doing right that they can increase value but not be balancing that value out with a growth or a higher placing in the trust and reputation? For me, that's, that's quite shocking. And this is where you're highlighting
4: how, you no, know, research and data now gets much more granular and sometimes throws up big surprises between um, a rating in one metric versus a rating in another. Um, to come back to Capotech, you know, people forget it's a brand that's been around now, um, I think it's just over 20 years, um, and I don't know when You were first conscious of it. I was probably first conscious, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago, um, partly because I was doing work for African Bank when African Bank was, in fact, the dominant person, well, the dominant bank in in that sector, if I can put it that way. Now, Capitech has come up more and more and more. A lot of people say that they cater for the, the bottom end of the market, but they've actually maintained that position, but migrated the brand up through to the point that. I know a lot of people who are um, middle-class, irrespective of race, professional people who have a Capitec account. Um, why do they have a Capitec account? Because it's cheap and you can trust it. It delivers. Um, and I think this is what we all want. Um, we want to be able to rely. You know, they often say that a brand is like uh, a good friend, like a partner. You want to know where you stand. You want to be able to trust them. Uh, They're going to be always there for you. Um, If you buy something, it's always going to deliver. It's not inconsistent. So some people say, well, being consistent is being boring. No, it isn't. It's ensuring your position in a person's psyche. And I think Capitech has done incredibly well. And it's expanding. It's innovating all the time. Um, You know, a bank like uh, one of the really big four if i can put it that way fnb being around what is it 150 years or so fnb is innovating and for a big beast it's being very agile and uh, moving pretty fast but it still can't beat capitec and this is where i find it fascinating the way capitec has got huge trust a huge following stays relevant by expanding its services all the time you know, it's gone into what, mortgages insurance is tying up with other organisations and companies, so it's adding on all the time the services, and it's really growing hugely as a financial institution based in Stenovos.
1: Yeah, and I think you know you've raised some interesting points there about innovation, in particular. And I know one of the themes in the report is that innovation for innovation's sake can actually be counterproductive that innovation that counts positively on, on the scorecard is innovation, which is designed to meet customer needs. And if I look uh, at a Capitec and I look at an f I think the innovation is directed at, at customer outcomes. Um, and, you know, perhaps unlike a discovery bank, which might have been innovation for the sake of innovation, you know, a little bit like Windows 11, those of you who've been watching your laptops going into the wheel of death For the past week there's a desperate attempt by windows to fix all those things which are never broken in the first place um but just coming back to strongest brand i'm going to hand back to to the doc um capitech number one strongest brand f and number two four uh, yeah four and five vodacom and mtn so all out of the big sectors but there's the sleeper doc you you kind of um i think referenced it a little bit earlier um calling black label there's got to be a marvelous story in there somewhere
4: well, I think it's interesting how um, in South Africa we were the land, weren't we, of Castle. Um, you know, you think back to um, 26, 27 years ago when SA Breweries produced was at 97% of all the beer in the land, and most of it was Castle. I think Lion had just disappeared. Um, and then they had Carling Black Label, they had Hansa. Um, they had Olsons, I think, uh, there was that from someone else. And Carling Black Label has been positioned, as you know, over the years, almost as uh, the blue collar beer, as it were, often beamed at the uh, black community. Um, and as we know, in the rural areas, the black communities still might have cloudy beer, sorghum beer. And this. Now I remember talking to the marketers and the research people at SAB, and they said, well, you aspire to drink a clear beer um, and uh, perhaps at the end of the week or the end of the month, you're running out of money, so you revert back to cloudy beer. But the beer that they were positioning then for that market was Carling Black Label. And it's been consistently marketed. It's been um, innovatively marketed. And it's maintained its presence. If anything, it's grown its presence. And when you look at it there, Castle is just below that but Carling Black Label is the brand. Now we're seeing more and more in South Africa as well, the impact of Heineken. Now Heineken after all owns Windhoek and Windhoek is an extremely strong beer positioned about Reinhard's kabut the pure beer positioning. And now we have um, Heineken talking to Distel, uh, whether that's come, going to come about or not, we'll have to see, but Heineken is growing its footprint more and more and uh, I see in the last week, they've just bought a major Indian brewer as well. So I think soon, um, SAB as it was, AB InBev as it is, with Carling, whatever, is going to find itself in a much more competitive position. Because again, we know that if you go and buy a beer today, what beer are you going to drink? Because there's such a range. Um, and it's still interesting when people say, let's meet for a beer. And I always say, well, what beer are you thinking of? You know, uh, because there's such a range, such a choice. But that's the world we live in, I guess.
1: If I throw this back to the dock, I just want to say, Jeremy, if you go out and buy a beer today, please take me with me and show me where you're getting your smuggled uh, uh, smuggled drinks from. Uh, I'm quite impressed with your your recommendation that we nip out today. And in defiance of Uncle Cyril, uh, have a few beers. Doc, what do you say? Well,
3: <laughs> no, there's... Uh... That's not going to happen. Jeremy, just changing text slightly, and you're talking about uh, proudly South African uh, beers, as, 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 if you like. Let's talk a little bit, and, and we're going to the end of our podcast now. Um, Soft Power Index brand South Africa ranked 37th in the world. Just a, a one minute on, on that. Uh, I know it was a very robust study 75,000 people, 100 candles. So, again, it's a big data set. Let's just talk a little bit about South Africa.
4: Right. Um, soft power is, is something that um, is a term created by a um, professor at harvard university and uh, is it joseph oh? and this year in february for the second year in a row uh, brown finance had its soft power summit um, and again if i refer you to the website because you'll find there the the report on the south africa top 50 It's about a 60 page report. It's doubled its size from last year. And and as you're alluding to it, covers soft power and talks about the rating and it talks about the metrics. Um, And the metrics are something that is consistent again around the world so that we're looking at global best practice. We're looking at how South Africa fits into that. And you're looking at things from education, the judiciary, to sport, to technology, all these areas. And South Africa in some areas is doing quite well. Um, Some people say in fact that South Africans who live in South Africa are actually more critical of the country than those who live outside the country.
3: Jeremy, let's just change tack for a second. Uh, let's look at a more macro level. You know, South Africa is a brand uh, and, and there's a bit of work that you guys have done, a big study <coughs> across the world, you know, 100 uh, countries, 75,000 people interviewed to get to what is called a global soft power index or what I would call a nation branding exercise. Do you mind just taking us through where we are? I know we're 37th. Uh, is that good? Is that bad? And, and how, how does that stack up?
4: Right. Just to talk a little bit about soft power, it's a a term that was created by Professor Joseph Nye at uh, Harvard University. And um, Brown finance has had a soft power summit in London for the last two years. Of course, this year was virtual. But what we've done is, um, working on Joseph Nye's work, we've developed um, a school card, really, of what soft power is about. So one looks at, as it says, the soft aspects. Now, if you look at um, Russia, Russia is all about hard power at the moment. It's muscling in on various territories and it's being very aggressive as it was with a, a British destroyer last week. China is much more subtle. They've got the hard power, but they've also got a lot of soft power. And that's why I believe they're the biggest inward investor into Africa the last few years and a lot of what they do generates influence for them. So whether they're bringing in currently their vaccines, whether they're helping fund bridges or infrastructure, they're getting more and more soft power. So to your point, South Africa is sitting at uh, number 37th. That's not actually too bad, and um, when often we talk in South Africa and we're very, very critical and sometimes quite rightly, But people overseas say, actually, sometimes we're too critical. Um, And in some areas, we're doing better than we think we are. But what this is, is a global scorecard. Um, Some governments in some countries, and Vietnam is one, has taken this scorecard to heart from brand finance. And they've actually set objectives for the next nine years to 2030 as to what they want to achieve. Because sometimes you can pull levers in particularly weak areas, Um, and strengthen those areas. And this is where all along, brand finance is about bridging the gap between marketing and finance, closing that gap and making sure that through transparency, people see the metrics, see what's good and what
1: is bad. uh, And that way you can focus on strengthening your whole economy. And that last point before we get to wrap up, Jeremy, for me is really interesting in the report as well, talking about the whole economy. Um, you make a strong case for the contribution of uh, brands and, and strong brands into the economy itself. And from that drone perspective, it's often said of South Africa, we've got one of the worst genie coefficients in the world. But there's kind of a, a coefficient within a coefficient. If I look at the top 50 brands, only Khaoteng, Western Cape, and KZ in Durban actually feature in that, you know, and as a diversified economy, that, that's quite appalling. So in Kharteng, 29 of the top 50 brands, uh, Western Cape has 17, and cases in Durban has four. And um, that doesn't augment well for a diversified economy in, in a country like South Africa and, and the spread of, of wealth that is the halo effect of strong brands.
4: Well, you're absolutely spot on. You make a very good point. Now We talk about brands as being potentially ambassadors for countries when they go overseas, generating income, making the economy stronger. Obviously, brands create jobs. They, If they're making a profit, they create income for the fiscus, etc. And when you actually look at the spread of brands geographically, you can't argue that Santon, Johannesburg-Hauteng, is the absolute hub, not just for South Africa, but for Africa as a whole. Um, and it's rather sad to see the concentration increasing. Now, only in the last week or so, Clover, which is obviously a major brand, closing its plant down at Leidenberg, um, because out in the rural areas, they're not getting the support and the service that they need, whether it's electricity or water. And what we're finding is that um, if you look globally, it is interesting that of the top 100 brands in the world, for many, many years, over half of them come from the United States. A reason the United States economy is a absolute superpower but also you can't argue with the fact that the Chinese are coming Um, in just about every sector you look at now there are more and more Chinese brands many of them we've never heard of in the western world but they're getting stronger and stronger and especially in Asia so what we're trying to do through brand finance is bring uh, a greater awareness of the power of brand the potency of brand and the potential of the brand and then measure it so that it could be compared on a global best practice basis.
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, a great perspective, Doc. I think we're probably getting to the point reluctantly where we're going to have to wrap this one up. So, uh, Jeremy, first of all, let me just thank you. And talking about superpowers, um, I, I, I must I appreciate you dressing up today uh, for the clash between England and uh and Germany in the Euro 2020, and dressed up as a Morris dancer. I must say you look extremely fetching in that Morris dancer outfit. Uh, I'm not sure that the bells are as melodic as they might be, but I guess that'll change once you start dancing. To all our listeners out there, also let me just say that uh, we will be providing a link to the report. Otherwise, you can go to the uh, the Brand Finance website. And Doc, meet and drink to you, all this stuff, I'm going to leave it to you to do the wrap.
3: Thanks, Gordon. Yeah, and again, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time. You know, for for coming in again, uh, at least on Zoom. But I mean, chatting with us, Grand Finance. For those of you, uh, please go and familiarise yourself with the report. Go through it. It's, it's a wealth of information. I love I love reading it. There's a lot of insights to be gained from it. I'm certainly not on the side of saying, well, it's another boring, predictable report. In fact, far from it. I think winners deserve to win year in and year out if they perform well. Uh, I'm not big on turns. Uh, and, and secondly, there are also some nice wild cards that have come through. So, again, Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. Um, just quickly, how do people get a hold yeah. of, of is it brandfinance.ca.za? Is that the best place to go to? Go on to brandfinance.com.
4: Um, otherwise, you can always um, email me direct. And I'm j.sampson, samson with a p, at brianfinance.com. But... This is where if you go onto the brand Finance website, which is uh, located in London, all the reports by category and by country, all the methodologies, uh, we've just been talking about soft power, it's all there and it's all accessible. But if you get stuck, pop me an email and I'll make sure you're all linked up and you can see the whole thing. Because as you say, there's a wealth of information there. Absolutely,
3: Jeremy. Thanks again, Gordon. Uh, good luck for the Euros and uh, the Lions are playing the Lions this weekend, so that's something to look forward to. And South Africa are playing Georgia, so that's also good.
1: Absolutely, fantastic A couple of days of sport coming up. And once again, Jeremy, thanks again. Uh, the grandfather, Morris dance extraordinaire. Uh, we look forward to next year's report and having you back. Uh, in fact you're, uh, you're up for your second time, you're only the second person to have a second appearance on uh, the Dr Guru, so you're uh, in elevated status uh, Jeremy. Well thanks
4: for that and thanks Gordon. Uh, thanks for the reference to my brother earlier on who got married <laughs> on the day that England won the World Cup against Germany in 1966. So well,
3: there uh, we go. rest my case. tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. On that positive note, ciao for now. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye.
2: And so that was another episode of The Doc and the Guru. Please don't uh, forget to get a hold of us on Facebook. Like us, follow us, uh, subscribe to the podcast. And then, for my side, you can get a hold of me on LinkedIn, Dr. Doug Mataz. I'm uh, very active and very keen to hear about your views. Uh, and certainly will respond and hopefully we can bring that into the show. Thanks, Doc. And it's uh, Gordon Miller, the
1: guru, signing off. Thank you for being with us and listening into this podcast today. You can pick up the discussion with me on my Twitter handle, at Mzanzi Media. And I'd love to engage with you on any of the issues that we've taken on the show. And take us at our word, this is really going to be an open forum. There are no subjects that are taboo. And we'd love to have some of the younger, more, under listened if that's the correct phrase uh, voices to join us
0: uh, in this discussion thanks for your time this podcast series has been made possible by the salt the influencer company that turns influence into affluence in the same way that information is presented in this podcast in a relatable and authentic way the salt gets your customers to tell their real brand stories to their community go to thesalt.co.za to learn more about how the salt can help you grow your business